0: Good morning. How is everybody today? All right, all right. This side's good. This side's quiet this morning. So are you guys okay? Do we need a hug for this morning or anything? Get, get things going? Okay, maybe not, maybe not. Hey, I am glad to be here today. I hope you're glad to be here today. I wanna encourage you to continue part of this series. We've got one more week going into next week, uh, and it's one of my favorites that we can unpack. Uh, but today we wanna unpack this idea about happiness. And um, you know you can talk about a message like this sometimes, and it makes uh, it, it can it can bust a balloon or two, okay? And so I just want you to take this journey with us. Listen to what uh, we're going to walk through. We've been trying to help you understand how to how to read scripture in some different ways, so that you can uh, read on your own and continue to understand this a little bit. But here's the question I have for you as we start this morning: How important is happiness in the life that we live? Why don't you think about that for a moment? How important is happiness? in the life that we leave. It, it's, it seems like in our world, in our culture, that like happiness is the priority of all priorities. Okay, just think about that for a little bit. I mean, we, we, we want to be happy with our, our spouse or loved ones. We, uh, we want our kids to grow up and be happy. I don't know how many times I hear that from parents. I just want my kids to grow up and be happy. Okay, right, you know? We want to enjoy work, uh, people we work with. We just want work to be enjoyable, to enjoy it. But happiness is vague, isn't it? Yet it's so tethering to each and every one of us. And happiness is enticing. It's something that we all want, yet it seems so extremely fleeting. And happiness is universal, meaning it's, it's open to everyone, but it's defined differently by each of us in each culture. You thought about that? I mean, so it's kind of hard. It's kind of like holding water in your hands. But I thought, let's work on some sort of definition. When, when people talk about wanting happiness in their lives, this is how I define what they're talking about, okay? And maybe this is you. Happiness is a complete personal satisfaction of, underline this, drama-free living, right? And to only know success with everyone I come into contact with and every experience I have. That's happiness, that's happiness. When, when I talk to people, this is what we're talking about. I, you know, it, just, it just shouldn't be this hard to enjoy life. It just shouldn't be this hard to have a marriage. It just shouldn't be this hard. You know, This is what we talk about when we're talking about happiness. I mean, why wouldn't it be? I mean, isn't it kind of entrenched in the way that we think? Isn't this the way that we view the world that we're a part of? I think it is for us as Americans. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson, he spoke to this about being it being the very truth of our lives. Remember what he said, the Declaration of Independence? We hold these truths self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their self-creator with a certain, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That'd be a good name for a movie, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of who we are as people, right? And and happiness is a great American value, but should it be? Should it be for us as Christians? That's an intriguing question, isn't it? Should it be as Christians? I mean, when, when we think about our relationship with God, is happiness... The top priority that God wants for our character, our nature, and who we are personally. Is this what God, pursuing God, is all about? Is, there, is it a biblical standard that we can pursue and understand? Can we really expect God to make us happy? And is this even the standard that God breathes into the life of his followers, of his disciples? You know, we've been in this series, uh, The Bible Doesn't Say That, and it's, the approach has been to try and do this Mythbusters kind of approach. What are some tools, some tests that we can run Scripture through so that we can begin to learn and see it in its full understanding? I mean, our goal is that you too would have a fork and a knife and be able to cut your own meat, you know? that's what We, we want you to be able to start looking at Scripture differently so that when you approach it, it's not just an, an open page that you're trying to guess with, but you have some tools that you can be able to put into into practice. And so we opened our first week talking about God won't give you more than you can handle. That's an interesting statement, except God will give you more than you can handle so that you reach out to him, right? We talked about that. We talked about uh, God helps those who help themselves and unpack that little sticky wicket for a little bit. But today we want to understand this idea Does God want me to just be happy? So there's three tools that we're going to use, and uh, I have some props today to help us understand a little bit about when we talk about these tools, and the first tool we talk about is context. And so for a prop, we have brought today uh, my keyboard, my Bluetooth keyboard uh, for my computer. Now, context is like this. Let's say uh, I need to send an email to somebody on my staff, Okay. Uh, but the reality is, as soon as I use this keyboard and I type up this email and it gets sent, whoever receives it has a context to it that is probably impacted by the relationship that we have, conversations that we've been a part of, and, you know, if we went and goofed off the night before, right? They read into it, understanding relationship circumstances, and and the background by which that email would get sent. So when we think about context, when we're reading scripture, we understand that it's more than just the words on the page, but it's the relationships, the circumstances, the environment in which it was written that helps bring to life why those words are so valuable, okay? The second tool that we talked about was Bible theology. And when we talk about Bible theology, what we're talking about really is how the Bible itself can help interpret itself that you need to see it from its whole and not just the part. And so when we talk about that, we talk about uh, maybe as a, a picture of a map, right? When you look at a map, there's a destination somewhere that maybe you're trying to go or somewhere that you're trying to get, but there's a greater whole that it represents. And these roads and these highways and these interstates, they're all interconnected and they lead to different portions, but they all function together to allow you to take a journey wherever you want to go within this map. And so when you look at scripture, you've got to understand that they interrelate to each other. And when there's moments that you have confusion about a passage, that there's probably another passage that helps bring to light, either supporting what you understand it to say, or maybe help fill out a different direction than what maybe you thought it said to begin with. But our last tool is my favorite tool, and we call them the Christ lenses. We want everybody to be able to read scripture uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection. So we, we thought of these these blockers, you know, so don't hate what you can't imitate, you know what I'm saying? So, But when you put these on, you are now viewing scripture through a much different perspective. You are trying to read everything that you read in scripture from the lens of what does this have to do with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, even the very person and character of Jesus. So whether you read uh, the Old Testament and its history, or whether you're reading through a psalm, or whether you're reading through the New Testament, through a letter, you, you bring it back through these lenses. What does this have to do with the greater story of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how does it fit in? We're going to use all three of those tools today, but let's look at a passage that I think many of us use to defend this idea that God wants us all to be happy. Now, some of you have a mug or a T-shirt or maybe a tattoo that says this, but let's turn to Jeremiah 29, 11. Can we do that? Now, this is a life verse for many of us. This is kind of one of those verses that people turn to for hope and encouragement. And so let's, let's just see it for a second. Here's what it says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to not harm you, plans to give you hope and give you a future. Well, what's this passage even really about to begin with? Because the Bible is written in a time and a season to a group of people that are a living life and trying to figure out what it means to be obedient back to Christ. Now, first and foremost, this passage is out of a book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the author of that book, and it's about his life story and experience. Now, Jeremiah is a, a preacher, so to speak, but he's more of a prophet, meaning God has commissioned him to speak truth on God's behalf to a nation to help lead them back to a better relationship with God. The problem is. Jeremiah's nickname is the weeping prophet, okay? He's the weeping prophet. It's because the message that he has to share is so passionate and so painful because he's speaking to a rebellious nation, to a group of people who are the family of God but are living in rebellion back to this life of God. Most commentators say that as he spoke this message, that maybe he had two converts, two converts, and sharing a message for the nation of of Israel. Okay? Well, as he's giving this message, he's he's writing in a time where the nation of Israel is actually living in what we would call covenant infidelity and sin. That they're rebelling against the relationship that God has called the nation of Israel into, and what they've begun is they've begun to listen to false prophets, people who are not speaking and representing God, and they're chasing after those desires and ways and they're rebelling and beginning to actually worship other gods and create partnerships that are not God-honoring. So Jeremiah begins to speak into this and begins to confront the very dynamic of what's happening. But here's the other piece. Jeremiah's commission is to preach for 70 years while they're in Babylonian captivity. And keep in mind, this context is after being in hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. So when the nation of Israel is hearing this passage of hope, They're hearing it in a context of we've come out of this and now we're going into this. If there's anyone that needs hope, it's them. But what's the issue? What's the dynamic? Why does this matter to them? Well, let's read what it says. uh, Back up a little bit and see it in its greater context. This is what the Lord says starting in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise and bring you back to this place. That's an important sentence. This is a promise, a statement that'll happen in 70 years. Not 70 seconds, not 70 days, 70 years. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plan to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come pray to me and I will listen to you. Uh, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. What an interesting context. This, this conversation is kind of, a, it's kind of a two-way conversation. God is saying, I will visit, I will fulfill my promise, and I will hear you. But it's also the challenge of Israel. Israel, would you learn to call on my name? Would you learn to seek me? Would you learn to find me? I think if there's a value that we need to understand today, it's this truth that the pursuit of God above all else, is what God wants from us. The pursuit of God is what God wants from us. Even more than being happy, God wants us to pursue him. In the context, God is looking at his people, and they've messed up time and time again. We see this pattern from the nation of Israel. They walk in obedience, and then they begin to drift, and then they begin to sin, and then they begin to have deep rebellion, and eventually God brings them back to a pattern of repentance, and then all of a sudden they walk with God again, but they They're in a season now, once again, where they are in rebellion. And God says, hey, hold on for a second. For 70 years, you're going to walk through this situation, this scenario. And in that time, what you're going to learn is how to seek me, to call out to me, to trust me. And I'll hear you. I'll walk with you. The problem is that when we hear a passage like this, especially in the context of happiness, we would have to admit we want things right now, right? We want things instantaneously. And so when we read a passage like this where God is literally speaking to the nation of Israel saying, hey, yeah, in 70 years this is going to come to fruition, we're just like, oh, man, man, I, I'm checking out. That's not what I want. That's not my will. That's not my way. Because the problem of us, we, we want everything now. We want microwave blessings. We want, we want to request and then set our clocks like a sprinter and ready to time how soon God's going to show up and get it done, Right? But there's no, perhaps no greater test of our faith and trust in God than when we wait on God, when we put on hold our happiness for what God has in store for us. and we pursue. But we find ourselves continuing to pursue immediate, gratif- immediate gratification. You ever find yourself where maybe you've cut a corner at your job or at your school just so you could get ahead to make something pay off for your advantage or ever trip somebody up or have somebody look a little worse than you so that it might promote you in a different way? Maybe your intimacy in your relationships, stepping out before the context of marriage or harbor bitterness or resentment, hoping that some way you could take vengeance or control. You ever lead to retaliation instead of pausing for grace, hoping that they would eat dirt and get what they deserve? So this is the challenge, the tension. And if we were to get real, we would just say it this way, that the pursuit of happiness is more about the pursuit of personal gratification. It's about what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And when it doesn't go our way, we're angry. It's not so different with the nation of Israel. Back in the time of Jeremiah, I mean, they found themselves pursuing other ways and other wants. They found themselves stepping outside of their country, outside of their people, pursuing other gods and other, uh, uh, other passions to give them a better life. And I think it breaks God's heart, not only in the time of Israel, but it breaks God's heart for us. That we would pursue anything else above him. That we would pursue any will or way or desire other than honoring God above everything else. Nothing will challenge your view of happiness than dealing with this truth that God knows what is best for us, and therefore, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing when our life isn't the way it wants, when it's not perfect, when there's challenges and obstacles to walk through. I mean, think about this just in your own walk a little bit. When we agree with God, when things are going the way we want, it's all good in our relationship with God, right? We, we, we have no problem. We have no beef. But when things don't go in the way that we think is in our best interest, that's when we begin to throw out God's will. We begin to throw out God's way. It's interesting because God is at work whether we like it or not, whether it's our will or not. God's trying to be at work within us, not to make us angry or frustrated. But in every scenario where it comes to this crossroads intention there's a battle of will, God's will or my will, God's way or my way. And some of us would begin to say, well, you know what? There, maybe, maybe God just doesn't want me to be happy. And I, I'll say that's, that's not really even the truth either because John 10.10 10 reminds us, That God wants us to live life and life to the full, life to the abundant. But the description he is giving there is an understanding of living a life in his will and his way is a life that flourishes beyond our will and our way. See, the tension of all of this is in the pursuit. What or who are we ultimately pursuing? Are we pursuing happiness as our ultimate goal or are we pursuing holiness, the character of God in who we are and what we're a part of? You see, we live in a culture where uh, prosperity and, 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 and blessing or happiness and prosperity seem to go hand in hand. And unfortunately, we begin to let that shape our culture in the way that we think. When, when we look at our lives and we think, well, look, I have so much to my life. We think, well, God must love me much, right? Or we see somebody with great stuff. We think, well, God must really love them. But the transverse can be true, too, that sometimes when we don't have enough or others are struggling, we say, well, God doesn't love them. I mean, we have to admit that there's this false belief and assumption that God is solely concerned about us being happy and being happy under our own definition. I mean, think about this value. If happiness is what God wants... How does a missionary communicate that to children who are starving or dying from a disease that can be cured in America? Do you understand what I'm saying? Prosperity can be a blessing. It really can be. Prosperity can also be a sign of sin and deception that maybe they just haven't gotten caught yet or been exposed. But blessings from God are always prosperous, not always financially, but in the way that God is growing us and stretching us. I mean, the people of God understood this. But the prosperity is not that, hey, if you follow God and love God, you're going to get a bigger house. You don't hear Jesus ever teaching the people, hey, if you learn to obey me and follow me, you'll go from a one-hump camel to a two-hump camel and really be riding in style. You know what I'm saying? No, it's actually much different than that. And I think it's because God is trying to lead us beyond happiness. Why? Why? Because pursuing God leads beyond happiness. Then, when God is at the center of your goal, God is your ultimate goal. When you're pursuing God in everything that you are, it takes you from happiness and beyond. You begin to see things. I mean, let me let me put these through the Christ lens for a second, okay? When Jesus talks about this happiness, he uses the phrase "blessed," and "blessed," while it can be somewhat translated like happiness. It's really this understanding of joy and contentment, a secure identity in who we have in Christ. And so Jesus says it this way, when he's trying to shape a new identity for the community of of God, when he's trying to help reprioritize the values of what need to be celebrated and understood, Jesus shares this in a message. He says it this way in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, Who were before you? Uh, You can put this in a Hallmark card with a bunch of flowers, but that doesn't sound like blessing in today's context, does it? This is not how we think of happiness. This is not how we think about what really matters. And yet Jesus anchors this as the portrait of joy, of the identity of contentment and happiness. Two major things jump out in this passage is there's really no tangible expression of something to be gained in this world. It's all about character and the kingdom of heaven and and, and God's work in us and shaping in us. And the second thing is, there is a level of pursuing God, pursuing the way of God first. And that way is through meekness. It's through a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's in being merciful and pure in heart. Namely, the pursuit of God will bring the things of God into your life. But what if we're not? What if we're not pursuing God? The truth is, we cannot expect the things of God to be happening in our lives either. The question then is, would you rather be happy or be blessed? Would you rather be happy Or joyful. Let let me give you a couple of little, just quick definitions to maybe compare this a little bit. When we talk about happiness, we're talking about happiness is what is happening around you. Your happiness is contingent on the people and their attitude. Your happiness is contingent on the response, the reward, the success that you have. The the, the happiness that you have is contingent on the entertainment value that you gain from the, the type of experience that you're going through, right? When we talk about joy, We're talking about God's character at work through you. No matter the relationship, no matter the circumstance, no matter the scenario. Happiness is attached to this life, to the very temporary things, and all this stuff ends. But joy is attached to a hope of an eternal life that's being lived out because of God's relationship in us. And that cannot be taken away. So let's let's move to our third kind of tool. Let's look at this from a a biblical theology. We see the passage out of Jeremiah, and we see in its context that it's written to a group of people who have been in captivity and will be in captivity even more. And in their rebellion, God is inviting them to come back, and his, his statement is really a plea. If you would trust me, lean into me, follow me, you would experience the life intended for you. Jesus makes this comment. He says, You know, what's really valued in those who are blessed and prosperous are those who hold these values, values that only come from God and God alone. But James, the half brother of Jesus, he begins to to speak about this in his in the opening of his book, and he reflects a very similar pattern to what we see out of Jeremiah. Here's what it says, verse 2 Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, you may be complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You know Jeremiah gives this strong message to the nation of Israel. And he says, "You know what? If you will call out to God, if you will lean into God, if you will trust God, God will hear you, and God will lead us into this new life." James says, "You know what? If your circumstances are tough and you're not sure what to do, call out to God. Ask the one who gives wisdom. He will hear you. But perseverance—it's got to finish its work." Because we're growing in this process. Clearly, joy and hap- happiness differ on the basis of the desire of our heart. Holiness Holiness is what God's calling us in joy. And holiness is the pursuit of the living God's will and character for our life. We're set apart for God's purposes. We're set apart for God's glory. And holiness intends a development of the whole character of God, complete and mature, lacking nothing in every area of our lives. So let me just give you some practical ways that, <laughs> that happiness and joy differ. First and foremost, when it comes to happiness and joy, what I feel shapes my happiness, what I know shapes my joy. Let me say it to you this way. Oftentimes we talk about happiness is if it feels right, it must be right. And if it feels wrong, it must be wrong. Well, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, confusing signals, even in that conversation alone. But happiness can be taken in just an instant while joy is secure, Joy helps us anchor beyond the circumstance or situation and how I feel and anchors it into the character of God that I know who God is. I know what God desires for me. God has my best interest in mind. God knows what's best for me. And even though life may feel tough and difficult right now, there's a decision that maybe I don't want to make, but I need to make, is trust God to grow in my joy. Second of all, Happiness sees obstacles that God is against me, where joy sees opportunities to trust God is for me. So when happiness happens and things get difficult, whether it's in your marriage or your finances or your your, your job situation, if happiness is your goal, you start throwing red flags that it shouldn't be this hard, it shouldn't be this difficult. This is wrong. This is an injustice. But when things get tough in your marriage or in your job or in your finances, Joy says, this is the opportunity to lean into God, to grow and become who God's created me to be. An anticipation of how God might work in and all in and through all things. A couple of things happen though. Sometimes we like to say in this community that when, when things are hard, maybe God's against it, right? And sometimes we like to say, when, when things go well, then clearly God was in it, right? But the truth of the matter is. God bless you that your house sold quickly, but it may just be that you chose a good realtor, you know? It's not necessarily that God himself, because you're a good guy or you're a good girl has opened the doors to give you an advantage in front of anybody else. The third truth is this though, happiness becomes the pursuit itself when we're talking about happiness. And joy becomes the result of that pursuit. Joy becomes the result of the pursuit. So what what are you pursuing? My wife says it this way. Christy Schaffner says, Emotions are tools, not truth. I don't know how many times we've had to say that to myself, to my children. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that's the way it is. And the pursuit of happiness above all else ultimately leads us to entitlement. But the pursuit of holiness above all else leads to a joy unimaginable. Happiness has its root in stuff or self, but joy has its root in the character of God and learning to be content. Happiness sways by the winds of life, but joy has deep roots that cannot be swayed. Happiness is fleeting, a fleeting emotion that comes and goes like the tides, but joy, it's intentional. It's an intentional commitment and a trust in the person of Jesus, regardless of the circumstances around us. Happiness says, I must get in order to arrive. Joy says, it's already been given freely through God, through his love, his work, his forgiveness, his great and the spirit of God. And I am full. Happiness asks, what do I require? Joy says, what does it require of me? If we were to summarize all of this, joy is the fruit And holiness is the root. Joy is the fruit of a pursuit of God. And holiness is that anchor in Christ, that foundation to live as only God would have us live. Yet God would rather you be holy than happy. And God would rather lead you to a life of surrender more than to a life of success. And God would rather shape you into his likeness than let you be shaped by only what you like. So, what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing per- holiness before God, set apart for His will and His way? Or are we pursuing personal happiness, our will and our way? Let's move to a time of response. It can be somewhat painful when you hear a message like this that some people go, okay, Danny, I've heard you on this, so so what you're saying is God wants me to be miserable. No. That's not what we're trying to say here. God wants you to have life and to the full. God wants you to experience life in a way that you could never imagine for, for yourself. But God knows what's best for us is to live his will And his way. See, the reality is in a conversation like this, what's really in the back of our minds is that we know we can be the greatest obstacle to this. We may be the very issue that keeps us from living in joy and pursuing the temporary. So here's the question Who are you pursuing? Are you pursuing yourself or are you pursuing God? It'll show up because you'll know that if you're living a life of self, it'll be centered in the things around you, the things about you. But if you're living a life for God, it'll be centered on a life of surrender. First and foremost, for God's will and for God's glory and second for the benefit of the blessing of the world around us. And so maybe God's adjusting your lenses today. Maybe there's some things that you're looking at. There are some high values of things that you hold very dear that you're pursuing because you think that promotion, that job, that relationship, that circumstance, whatever it's gonna be, is gonna, it's gonna heal whatever ails you. And the truth of the matter is, no spouse, no amount of money, no prestige in a job, no situation of power will ever settle the dissatisfaction of your heart. Only a life surrendered and anchored in the person of Jesus will. So let me ask once again, who are you pursuing? And may today If it be ourself, may we put a stake into the way that we used to live and allow the Spirit of God to transform us from the inside out. Let's pray. God, in just a moment, we're going to begin to respond, and we would ask that you would permeate our hearts and our minds, that, God, you would begin to quicken us into an action and a response that would not only change the way we feel in this moment or the way that we think in this moment, but would transform the way that we live in the moments to come. God, sometimes some of the best situations in our life are some of the most damaging to us. We we think just because it's great or good that that must be what you want, but we know that sometimes those things lead us down a direction of more self and more want. And God, I'll confess, I don't like difficult times. I don't like challenges. I don't like hardships. But God, I'll also confess that in those moments where I was grown and humbled and disciplined and confronted, God, when I breathed a deep breath, it was a breath of you. I could lift my head and I could see the world differently. I could speak differently. I could live differently. And so, God, may our faith not rise and fall by the joy and excitement that comes into our life, the things that are successful, the things that are fun, the things that are hype, the things that people celebrate, but God, may may my life be centered only in you. And when the things of you come into my life, God, would I experience immense joy, realizing that it's not just stuck to a moment, but it's impacting eternity. God, when, when you speak into our lives, God, would our heart resonate with anticipation and excitement that your will and your way is gonna be even more expressed in us and the world will begin to see how your life in us changes us all. God, today we hand over ourselves to you every moment, every relationship because we love you. Not because we have to, but because we want to. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. In just a moment, we're gonna have a chance to respond. And if you are a guest with us, and this time we will sing a song and people will move to the front when they're ready to, to pause in prayer at these benches, some out of repentance, some out of confession, some out of celebration, but we will all respond. Some of us will walk to uh, these tables. There are six of them around this room, two in the front, two on the side, two in the back. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we encourage you to go to the one closest to you that you may be able to eat the bread and drink the juice and be reminded of when Jesus said, This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. That it became the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. It was the portrait of joy complete, of peace being made between God and humanity. It's our hope, it's our prosperity. It's our eternity. And then many of us will also respond through giving, whether through the Give app or whether it's through the, the Give and Respond boxes. But we encourage everyone to give. If God has impacted you and provided opportunity for you to provide, to partner then with the mission of God of what he's doing through this church and through a people who love him. But as the music begins, we would encourage you to stand and when you're ready, feel free to move to whatever station it feels appropriate. Let's stand and sing.